us pray. Oh, Lord God, um, we're here again to, to learn from your word, to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. And um, Lord, for some here today, this might be a real hard message, might even stir up anger. And maybe for others of us, it might stretch us beyond what we would feel comfortable. But Lord, we pray that you will do it because you love us and um, you, because you are doing your deep transforming work in our lives. And Lord, we believe that you are in the business of changing this world, bringing your kingdom to the kingdoms of this earth. We pray in your name. Amen. Well... Over this last week, you know, a lot of us, we've been watching the news, haven't we, in the aftermath of the Unite the Right uh, protest that was held in Charlottesville, Virginia. The rallying point for that, uh, for that march and protest was the city council's decision to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee, uh, the Confederate general. And uh, they came wearing helmets, like you see there in the photo, uh, they also had brought homemade shields, a lot of them maybe decorated with uh, white supremacist symbols or, or their organization. Some of them carried guns. Most of them were young men in their 20s and 30s, uh, about a thousand of them, and they were well organized. And this leader that you see here in the photo, uh, I watched him say that they were coming to do this and they had no fear because they were, he said, they were doing God's work. Now, Charlottesville is only about 30 minutes from where our nephew and his family live, Tom. And Tom graduated from Robert E. Lee High School. I mean, we don't think we have any of those in Nebraska, but in Virginia and other places in the South, it's not uncommon. So the mythos of General Lee is well established in white southern culture. And Tom said he was shocked at the level of hatred that was expressed by the Unite the Right groups. Um, I also read a blog of uh, Brian McLaren. Uh, I've read some of McLaren's books. I've met him, visited with him briefly. Um, he was asked to come to this, to the counter demonstration, uh, to witness against white supremacy, Nazism, and racism. McLaren said of the Unite the Right groups, he said they carried an assortment of flags, mostly Confederate, many representing their respective organizations with a surprising number of Nazi flags. He said, I'm 61, and before this weekend, I've never seen a single Nazi flag carried proudly in the United States. This week, I saw many. He said, their use, their use of torches Friday night and uh, slogans like blood and soil were clearly intended to evoke uh, the KKK and Nazism. By the way, blood and soil was a German Nazi slogan. Well, closer to home, a Facebook page recently showed this. Um, it was posted about, I think maybe a week ago yesterday, 
uh, apparently taken near the Ashland exit of I-80. And you see on the second line there the, the web address bloodandsoil.org. Now that website has been since taken down. On Wednesday, a man in Hastings was arrested for plastering posters on utility poles throughout the city that included a white supremacist website. Another group is planning an anti-Muslim rally to be held in the steps of the state capitol on a football Saturday in September. So basically I, part of my purpose in my message is to let you know that a lot of this isn't just far away. It's not just in the south. It's closer to home than you think. The counter demonstrators in Charlottesville uh, People like these included Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists. McLaren said a group of clergy, and this is his picture, by the way, uh, they walked arm in arm into the very center of the so storm, so to speak, delaying entry into the park as they stood, sang, and kneeled. He said other cler clergy and faith leaders marched to the park to a park, participated in a rally, and then dispersed to several locations, including a Methodist church a block away from Emancipation Park, where he says, we helped medics, sang, and held signs as a message to white supremacist and Nazi marchers. McLaren adds, I was deeply impressed by the Black Lives Matter participants they were in the middle of the fray. They went into the middle of the fray and stood strong and resilient against vicious attacks, insults, spitting, pepper spray, tear gas, and hurled objects. At the scene where a supremacist had just driven his car into the crowd of counter-demonstrators, of course, that was all over the news over the weekend, McLaren saw a young woman stand on a milk crate and shout, people, this is hard. This is heartbreaking to see our neighbors lying in the street, badly injured. But we must realize what's at stake when Nazis and white supremacists want to take control of our country. We must not be intimidated, but be more committed than ever to stand against them. She did not issue a call to violence or revenge, but only resilient resistance. And most of the counter-demonstrators that uh, Brian McLaren was a part of, they were, they were peaceful. They, they were not attacking or getting revenge. There were a few, however, that used pepper spray against the supremacists, and I don't know the details of why or what happened. Now, I certainly applaud the courage of the nonviolent counter-demonstrators, but I, I wonder if, if maybe it would have been better to do it a different way because uh, engaging directly with the Unite the Right groups and the violence that ensued just made this blow up into big national news, which is probably what these groups wanted. To me, I wonder would it would have been better, better to, you know, hold a counter-demonstration in a, in a different location away from the protesters. Of course, it's easy to look back and wonder if you should have done it differently. I don't really know. Uh, but there may come a day when Christians have to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe in a situation like that.
And then it takes wisdom to know, is this that day? And I think that was one of the, the, the great gifts that Martin Luther King had. He knew, okay, this is the time, this is the place, this is the day when that must happen. There are many definitions of, of racism, but I offer this one to you today because it's short and hopefully easy to remember. Here it is. Racism. Prejudice plus power and privilege. Will you say that with me? Racism. Prejudice plus power and privilege. Now, of course, all racial prejudice in any direction is sin. Prejudice means to prejudge, right? Prejudice, prejudge someone, and in this case, based on skin color or their culture. But, look, but when prejudice is backed by the system, then it looks a whole lot different. And if, and if you're white, you probably don't recognize that power and privilege, at least very easily. It, it's really hard to see it, to know it, or to feel it. Now, uh, there have been, I think one other time I used this analogy, but I'm going to go back to it because to me it's, it really is illustrative. It, it's like riding a bike with the breeze at your back. Now, I've, that's happened to me where I've been riding my bike, the breeze was behind me, and I did not feel the breeze because I was moving with it, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, when, when you've got the breeze going at your back, you can make progress while you're pedaling much more easily. And even though you are convinced you're doing all the work yourself, I'm pedaling as hard as I can. But when you're pedaling against the breeze, do you feel it? Absolutely. It's hard to, to, to bike with the wind in your face. Uh, headwind makes every inch of progress harder. Um, the other day I was visiting with a longtime friend of mine. He's a white guy about my age. His kids are grown. He said, you know, I never once had to tell my sons that when an officer pulls you over, keep your hands on the wheel. Your life may depend on it. He said, I didn't need to have that talk with my sons. My dad didn't need to have that talk with me. That's an example of white privilege. When I was a student at Nebraska Wesleyan, I was in a fraternity, and uh, I remember one year during rush, an, an African-American first-year student uh, visited our house, and uh, after the meet and greet, I was amazed that some of my brothers, my frat brothers, said, well, he wouldn't fit in. They said that our house wasn't ready for him. Now, my best friend and I, we got kind of mad, and we said we would be ready to quit the fraternity if this student asks to come back for a second visit, and we vote him down. As it turns out, he did not ask for a second visit, so it never came to a vote. But in that situation, who held the power? Who held the power? All, like I said, all racial prejudice is sin, but when it's accompanied by power and privilege, it becomes evil, becomes oppressive. And we United Methodists, as we just remember here in our baptismal vows, we pledge to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. 
Perhaps the most blatant example of racism in the Bible is found in the book of Esther, um, which is why I asked Laura to read that passage for us from, the, from uh, Esther chapter 3. Happens nearly nine, or excuse me, nearly 500 years before the birth of Jesus. At this time, many Jews are living as exiles within the Persian Empire. So when the king of Persia decides it's time for a new queen, he calls his assistants to gather all of the most beautiful young women of the, of the empire to him, uh, and, which, of course, is government-sponsored sex slavery, right? Anyway, so of all the young women, the king chooses Esther to be his queen. But she smartly keeps her Jewish identity a secret. When Esther was young, her parents, had, her, her parents died, and so she was raised by a relative, a man named Mordecai. Mordecai had a job working as one of the guards at the royal residence, uh, but he refuses to bow when the king's friend, Haman, comes through the gate. Mordecai, you're supposed to bow when Haman comes through. It's the law. You're breaking the law. But for reasons we don't know, they're not really explained, Mordecai won't do it. Haman decides to get revenge, not just on Mordecai, but to all his people. He uses his power and privilege to get the king to go along with his plan to eradicate the Jews. We call that genocide. Holocaust. On a certain day chosen by Lot, every Persian gets a free hunting license to kill Jews. And as added incentive, if you kill them, you get to keep their stuff. Mordecai appeals to Esther. She's queen, right? She can do something. She can intervene. She can, but, but Esther's afraid because she knows, you know, in the Persian Empire, you do not approach the king without being requested because, I mean, that's kind of the result. But Mordecai helps her to see that perhaps this is the moment for which God has allowed her to become queen. What if God put you here just so you could save his people for such a time as this. So, risking her life, Esther approaches the king. She, she spills it all about how she's a Jew, and, and you know, she, she explains what's going to happen, and the short story is that she stands up and speaks up, the king listens, and her people are saved. So, Based on this story, in the book of Esther, here are some things that I think that we can do to respond to racism. First, keep listening and keep learning. You know, you, you cannot bypass this one, all right? Esther listened to Mordecai and learned about the threat of the Jews. The king listened to, to Esther and learned of Haman's deception. And you and I, we've got to keep listening and learning. You know, in the last couple of years, I've been reflecting more and learning more about what, what really is white privilege. Because like I say, with the wind at your back, you don't really feel it. You don't notice it. But I've been listening, trying to learn. Lately, I've been asking uh, a few friends who are people of color 
uh, how they've experienced racism. One young man, a friend of mine, said that he was pulled over by an officer here in Omaha and uh, the officer came to the car door, rolled down his window, said, he asked the officer what was wrong. The officer said, well, there'd been a robbery committed and he fit the description of the suspect. He asked the officer what kind of description was given. Basically, there was none. He was pulled over for DWB, right? Driving while black. You know, I thought about my friend, that car. How afraid he must have been to be pulled over and said, you know, there's just been a robbery. You look like the guy. The officer said that he wanted to search the car. My friend said, no, you have no reason to search my car. He thought, well, what if he's the kind of officer who would plant evidence in my vehicle? You never know. I recently talked with a young African-American woman who attended uh, a mostly white high school here in the metro. And I asked her, what racism have you experienced? And by the way, I have permission to share all these stories that I'm telling you today. But uh, she shared a few examples. uh, But one I thought was especially vivid. Uh, She played basketball uh, at her school. And at one point, she started, decided she'd start wearing a headband. And her coach told her to get rid of it. She said it made her look like a thug. You know, the coach wouldn't have said that if she were white. Right? When I, whenever I ask people of, of color what experiences of racism that they have personally encountered, they always seem to have a story. They always seem to have something to share. And when I listen, I learn. Now, where my nephew grew up in Virginia, uh, you know, Confederate flags were everywhere, right? I mean, it's sort of, sort of the, the, the South. I mean, uh, bumper stickers and posters and T-shirts. It's as Southern as black-eyed peas and grits. The Confederate flag. Any, anybody remember the Dukes of Hazard? I'm sorry about that. Just kidding. Anyway, what was the name of their car? The General Lee. The General Lee. And on the roof of their car, it had the Confederate flag. How many African Americans do you know who fly the Confederate flag? About as many as Jews who wear a swastika, right? By the way, uh, of the remaining original Dukes of Hazard uh, uh, cars, the, uh, the General Lee was w- number one was purchased by professional golfer Bubba Watson, who also happens to be a devoted Christian, and he said he plans to get rid of the Confederate flag on top of the car and replace it with an American flag. If you're a Christian... And you're a disciple of Jesus, and a disciple means that you are a learner, right? You are always learning from Jesus about his way. And if we're going to respond to racism, we've got to keep learning, got to keep listening and learning. And then we've got to stand up and speak up. And that's what Esther did, right? 
She stood before the king at great risk. She spoke not knowing what would happen to her or if it would even do any good. Tricia and I, uh, on Sunday night, we attended a vigil uh, at Turner Park in Midtown Crossing in the aftermath of the Virginia episode. And, and uh, there, there must have been 15 speakers in the course of one hour. Uh, but I have to tell you that a lot of that time I didn't feel very comfortable. Um, there was so much that was going on that was just like partisan rhetoric and inflammatory language and meant to kind of whip up somebody's political base or something but three speakers I liked they spoke on behalf of the church a Roman Catholic deacon United Methodist clergy and a Baptist pastor and I could tell they came to represent Jesus recently at a, at a restaurant not far from here a member of our church and her two granddaughters were enjoying dinner together and dining at a table near them was an, an older African-American couple. And then, in a little bit, the hostess came by to seat an older white couple, but the husband refused to be seated next to the African-Americans. And so the hostess, I'm sure, just kind of decided and moved them to a different table. You know, if I had been there, I probably would have been so shocked and flabbergasted that I wouldn't have known what to do. You know how that is? You just, you just kind of freeze up and you... And then when I get home, I would think of these things, right? Think of the things that I would do, what I should have done. And you know what I found is that that's not so bad because when I, when I go back home and think of those things, that helps me be ready next time. One idea that I had as I was thinking about her experience was to then then to go up to the african-american couple and tell them that you were that i was so sad to witness this that it's just terrible and and i would say it just loud enough so that the tables around us who had also probably seen what happened could also hear and i might even ask the server if she would bring me or he would bring me their tickets so I could pay for their meal. We can also stand up by, by speaking up to uh, and, and advocating our concerns to elected officials, to business leaders. And, you know, I'm all for free speech. But we have to remember that terroristic speech is not protected. That, that speech that inspires violence is not legal. And I want to remind our mayor of that. And I want to remind our governor of that. And one more thing that we can do, and I mentioned it last, although it's probably where we would begin, and that's this. Pray for peace and for justice. Pray for yourself. Pray that you would not prejudge based on race. Pray for your friends who face discrimination. Pray for the wisdom to comprehend and to learn the subtleties of racism. Pray for courage. To know, to, to stand up when the moment calls for it, to speak up. And then also pray for the white supremacist 
that they would have a change of heart and then love them treat them with kindness and dignity win them over through love whenever possible I talked to our nephew Tom on Thursday and then on Friday he sent me uh, an article about a vigil that was held in Charlottesville on Wednesday evening where, where people of the community traced the entire path that the Unite the Right groups had gone down but this time they came through singing and praying and the mayor said that they were replacing last week's horrific images with these new images of love the vigil was not advertised on social media for fear that groups from the previous weekend might return to disrupt it one woman at the vigil said you never think that something's going to happen to your city and you never think that your city is going to become a hashtag this week I'll be meeting with a couple other pastors to consider how we might reach out to uh, to all area metro churches and even other faiths seeking how we might prepare ourselves to have a united response to the rise in racism we want to be ready we want to come together we want to be ready to respond when the moment comes um, I want to thank Vicki O'Hara for being a, a great researcher for me of kind of seeing things and people passing her things that she then passed on to me um, and one of those things was a prayer that's found in the in the Book of Common Prayer. It's an Anglican resource. And I like it because I think it expresses our unity and our desire for the healing of the nations, including our own. So this, this prayer is going to appear on four slides. And I'm going to ask you now if you would stand with me. And uh, let's unite our voices as we pray. Oh God, you made us in your own image and redeemed us through your, your Son. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth that in your good time all nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne through jesus christ our lord